90s when Jordan and Pippen were in their heyday. But I think of Jordan and Pippen, and, and um, you know, I'll admit I love Jordan, so I grew up having like all the, you know, shoes, the shorts, the shirts, the, I had the pennants in my room for the Bulls, I had a Bulls trash can, so again, I might be biased, but that's one of the first people I think of when I think of a dynamic duo, and I think, because like we said, they had great chemistry, the way that they played basketball together, their chemistry was amazing, they would feed off of each other, and they'd work so well, and if one of them started to have a bad game, the other one would like turn it on, it was just, this just really good um, duo, this really good partnership. Um, but you also see that they got other people involved and they made other people on their team better. And I think that I, what I loved about that, and as, as I was looking, they both averaged across their career five assists a game. And so if you start thinking, about, okay, five and five, ten, and every basket is either two or three points, that means they're, they're just by passing to other people on their team, they're getting 20 extra points a game. And so... I don't know, I just, I think that they work well together, they get other people involved, and then you can't really argue with their results, right? Jordan and Pippen together won the national championship in 91, 92, 93, and then Jordan decided he was going to be a baseball player, which didn't really work out, um, although I got the baseball card. Um, and then they won again in 96, 97, 98. They had two three-peats. And so again, like, what makes a dynamic duo? They worked well together, they got other people involved, and then you can't really argue with their results. The reason I say all that is because today we're going to talk about a different dynamic duo, a dynamic duo in the Bible. We're going to talk about um, Saul and Barnabas, or also known as Paul and Barnabas. We've been going through the book of Acts, and we're into Acts chapter 13 and 14, and we're going to do one sermon over both of those, Acts chapter 13 and 14. And what you really see is Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul, working together as what I would say is an, an amazing dynamic duo. So what we're going to do as we talk about this dynamic duo today, we're going to kind of hit three things Really what we see in Acts 13 and 14 is they're going on a missional journey, and we're going to kind of look at that missional journey and really what was the purpose of the journey, what was the results of the journey, and then what can we learn from Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. So that's where we're, we're headed. Um, before we jump into Acts chapter 13 and 14, let's kind of like take a look back over the book of Acts, but also to see kind of how this dynamic duo first got started. So Obviously, um, if you know much about the Bible, you know that it includes a guy by the name of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but this guy by the name of Jesus, he comes on the scene and he starts saying, like, I am one with the Father. And the only way that anyone can have salvation is through me. And that kind of made some people mad. Some Jewish um, people made them kind of mad. And so they, long story short, they killed him. And then, so he died, but then he rose again. The Bible teaches that this Jesus, he truly died and then he truly rose, and then he presents himself alive for a period of 40 days, which would just be insane. To, <laughs> it would just be crazy. Like, he's died, he's risen again, and now he's presenting himself alive. And so that was a period of 40 days. And then Jesus, as he's with his followers, he says to them, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait, and you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then the craziest thing happens is that actually happens. So the Holy Spirit comes down upon them, and then these signs and wonders and people's lives are changing, and the number of people following this Jesus like grow like crazy. And then this group of people, they start really devoting themselves to the Word, right? They start devoting themselves to prayer. They start devoting themselves to one another. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, we first meet the guy Barnabas. His name is actually Joseph, but he's called Barnabas because Barnabas means the son of encouragement. And so can you imagine, this guy we meet, Barnabas, 
they, like, they just nickname him the encourager. Like, has to be a crazy cool guy to be nicknamed the encourager. No one has ever called me that, especially my kids. They don't really call me that. Um, but Barnabas, if you want to start calling me Barnabas, Shane, you can. But um, nope. Barnabas, <laughs> nope, you hear that? Nope. But this guy's name's Barnabas, okay? That's what everybody calls him because he's an encourager. And so what he does in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, is he sells a field. He takes all of the money from the field and he gives it to the church. He desires that the name of Jesus be spread. That's when we first meet Barnabas. And the message of Jesus is spreading like crazy, but it's not without trouble because persecution's starting. And you, it comes to a head in Acts chapter 7. A guy by the name of Stephen gets stoned to death because he's proclaiming this Jesus who has died and who has risen. And they don't, the Jews still don't like this message, and so they stone him to death. And it says at the end of Acts chapter 7, there's this young man named Saul. And then in Acts chapter 8, he stands there and he approves of the execution of Stephen. So it's like this unlikely duo. Like, what, how, in this, how in the world would this even happen? It goes on, Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Saul's ravaging the church. He's throwing men and women in jail. And then he even um, goes as far as asking if he can have a letter stating that he's allowed to go get any Christian that has left Jerusalem because of the persecution, take them bound, and take them back to Jerusalem for them to be punished. But on his way to go find these people, a bright light from heaven and a voice of Jesus and Saul believes that Jesus really is the way that we can receive salvation. He believes, he, he's baptized, and he starts preaching immediately. And then he decides, you know what, I should go hang out with these other believers. And so he tries to go, and guess what? All of them are scared of him. And I think, I think I'd be in that same boat, would you? Like, this guy's like just killing all of our friends. He's dragging them off to jail, and now he's trying to come hang out with us. I'd probably be a little apprehensive. And it's, from what we see, all the disciples are apprehensive, except for Barnabas. Barnabas, this encourager, he shows up, meets this guy, Saul, and in Acts chapter 9, he brings Saul to hang out with the other Christians. This encourager. And in Acts chapter 9, so he brings him and he vouches for him. He kind of sticks his neck out for him. From what we read in Galatians chapter 1, 8, it appears that maybe this is when, um, when Saul would have met Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, for the first time. But again, persecution's bad. And, and because Saul was one of the main persecutors and now he's come to faith in Christ, they really don't want him around, right? Because he just kind of gives even more validity to the message of Jesus. So they decide they need to try to kill him. So Saul scatters. Saul leaves. Um, he goes to Tarsus. So, then, pause. This is a long introduction, by the way. But So then we pause, and in Antioch, the message of Jesus is growing like crazy. It even says in 11.21 that there are a great number of believers that have turned to Jesus, and so much so that the church in Jerusalem says, we need to kind of see what's going on there. Like, let's hear what's going on, but let's also encourage what's going on. So they send Barnabas. Who better to send than a guy who's known as the encourager to support, exhort, encourage the church there? I mean, he's a man of good faith. He's a man of the Spirit. So they send Barnabas. Well, Barnabas gets there, right? He's in Antioch. There's all these new believers, and he quickly finds himself a little overwhelmed by how much work there is to do. And so what does he do? He leaves, goes to Tarsus, finds Saul, and brings him back. 
And I think that this is when this dynamic duo kind of really forms. They continue to go on. And in Antioch, I think that what they're doing for a year is really pouring into people. And I think it works out really well because this group of people cares so much about the church across the world that they decide to take a collection and to send it to Jerusalem. And so they choose Barnabas and Saul to go take this to them. And they take it to them and they come back, okay? But um, that's not the end of it. That's really just the beginning of this dynamic duo. But I want to pause just for a second. It seems like when you're reading the Bible that you can almost just be like, oh, this is like, you know, just took place real quickly. This period of time has been like eight to nine years. Like what I just described is like eight to nine years. So what we're going to be reading about in Acts chapter 13, 14 probably took place in about 48 or 49 AD, so like 15 to 16 years after Jesus dies. It's been probably at least eight or nine years since Saul believed in Jesus. So there's this time period that goes by, but again, that's what we're going to look at as we um, open up Acts chapter 13, we're going to look at what was the purpose of this missionary journey that this dynamic duo went on, what was the result, and what can we learn from it. So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. And this is what it says. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we, as we read about this duo, this partnership, God, I, I really feel like there's so much that we can learn from this. So God, I just pray that you'd open our hearts to hear from it, both as individuals, but also corporately as a church. And so God, I just pray that you would be with uh, my words, that they would be your words, and that you would guide us to uh, what you want us to hear. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this is the first missionary journey of, of Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas. Um, in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, Saul is names changed to Paul. So, so it kind of, that's, that's where we're at, is Saul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Paul. But what they really do in, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, they basically do this big travel circuit. And I'm not going to pronounce the names, although most of you probably won't know if I'm pronouncing them right or wrong, because I don't even know how they're pronounced. And, but in any case, they go on all these places. They go from Antioch to Cyprus, and they continue on down, and then they get to the kind of ending point, and then they kind of circle back. So what they're doing is they're going one way, stopping, turning, coming back the other way. And what they really seem to be doing, what the purpose of this trip is, it kind of seems to change halfway through. Like oh, the first round kind of has a purpose and the second round kind of has a purpose. So round one, what are they doing? They're really being witnesses of Jesus. They're going around, they're sharing about who this Jesus is. They're making disciples. They're, remember Matthew 28, 19, what Jesus told his disciples? He said, I want you to go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And really what we see Paul and Barnabas doing is just that. They're really trying to share this Jesus with people. You can see in Acts chapter 13 and verse 5, they're proclaiming the word in the synagogue. You see in verse 7, they're sharing the word when people summon them. 
In verse 15, they're speaking a word of encouragement. In 32, they brought the good news that was promised. In 38, they proclaimed. They proclaimed. They spoke the word. They spoke the word boldly. They spoke to the Gentiles. They were taking it to the ends of the earth. And if you really kind of go through and underline every spot where they're doing something, that's really ultimately what they're doing. They're trying to share Jesus with people. And it kind of reminded me so much of what Chris Collins preached about just a couple weeks ago. And it's really they're doing personal evangelism. They're really trying to share who this Jesus is. And even though, like, that's what, like, their whole life seems to be about. That's, like, why they're there. And I think if you're like me, you can kind of almost be like, yeah, but I I got kids and I got a wife and I got a job and I have responsibilities. Like, you got to cut the grass when the city comes. And, like, I mean, there's all of these things that we have to do, right? But when you stop and you start looking at, Paul and Barnabas, we can see that they worked. We'll read in Acts chapter 18 in a little bit that they worked as the trade as tent makers. You see in Acts chapter 20 that they worked to provide for their own needs, but also for the needs of those who are with them, and they worked so that they could provide for the weak. We read in 2 Thessalonians 3, 8 that they would toil night and day to not be a burden on anyone. You'd see in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is speaking, and he says, is it only Barnabas and I that have to work for a living? that we work hard to make money so that we can even pay for our own uh, ministry. And I think if you're like me, it's easy to kind of almost read something like this with Paul and Barnabas and almost be like, yeah, but they're missionaries. But really, they were missionaries um, by choice, not by job. Like they, their, their purpose of their life was to share Jesus with everybody that they would meet because he had made such a huge impact in their life. And, it, you know, I, I heard, I've heard it said, you, you talk about what you think about, and you think about what you love. And you know, like, I've heard, you know, Keith has said this before, like, if people are at my work, they know, this is the same with me that Keith has said, like, people at my work know that I care about my wife because I talk about her. But do they hear me talk about Jesus? And how do they hear me talk about Jesus? Um, but what they're doing in this first round is really they're seeking to share his name and his fame. They're seeking to do personal evangelism. And now, again, we can almost say, yeah, but it must have been easier for them, but I don't think it was. I think that their daily life, they were, they were working. They were going to the synagogue. They were going to the market. They were just doing everyday life, but their goal was to share Jesus with people. Um, now, they did have one thing that was a little bit easier. They weren't married and they didn't have kids. It could make it a little bit easier, and it can make it a little bit harder, too, probably. So that's what we see them doing. Their goal is to make Jesus known. But, you know, for those of us who do have a spouse, do have kids, like, who better and who, who are we more called to than to share Jesus even with, with them? So that's what's happening in the first round is they're really, as they're traveling city to city to city, they're just doing personal evangelism. Their desire is to see people come to know this Jesus and, be, and to experience him in such a way that they have experienced him. So then, um, what are the results of that? In verse, thir- in verse 12 of chapter 13, a proconsul believed. Many Jews begin to follow. Many Gentiles believe. There's a great number who believe they made many disciples. And again, you could almost go through and you could kind of underline what things they did and you could kind of almost circle the results of those things. And it's really cool to kind of see those things lined up. And even in chapter 14, verse 22, before they kind of hit the ending point, before they're going to turn back, 
14.22, they're strengthening the souls of disciples. They're encouraging the disciples to continue in their faith. Like their life, the purpose of their life was to share Jesus with people. The purpose of their life was to proclaim this message, and they really desired that they would strengthen other believers, that they would encourage them. Well, then they get to that kind of their stopping point, and they begin to turn back. I think what they're doing, some of this is is speculatory, but I think what they're doing is as they're traveling back through these places, they're trying to see, okay, who is it that really has taken this message and it's actually changing their lives? Um, To kind of use what I, I think that they're kind of looking at saying, who are the quote-unquote Christians and who are the followers of Christ? As they travel back through, who is it that's walking with Jesus? Who is it that's growing in the relationship with Him? Who is it that's really caring for the saints? I think what they begin to do is they, they, they want to go further than just encourage people to be believers. I think what they really want to do is see to it that there are disciples that are making disciples. What I would say is I think that they're trying to make sure that there are missional outposts for the kingdom. I think what they're trying to do is to see that there's this group of people and kind of help them form together and help them work together to see themselves as being in a specific place with a specific purpose of making Jesus known there. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to almost establish a community lighthouse. That in this community, the name of Jesus will be a bright light because of these people that are right here. So before, it's almost like they're just trying to make believers, right? And make disciples. But now it seems like it's going even further. They're trying to make disciples who make disciples. They're trying to form people together that there'd be accountability, there'd be challenging, there'd be encouraging. What they do reminds me actually of Jordan and Pippin. What they're doing is they're wanting to get other people involved. What they're trying to do is to get other people to use their gifts. What they're trying to do is give other people responsibility for the team's performance. What they do in 1423 is they appoint elders in every church. I think what they're really trying to do is reproduce themselves. They're trying for it to be not that we go into this city and we share Jesus and a bunch of people become believers and then we leave and then it doesn't, it doesn't work. It, do, it dies out. What they're trying to do, I think, is, is appoint elders, appoint a group of people who would regularly pray for, care for, that they would shepherd them, that they would fast over them, that they would put people who would set an example that would feed the sheep, that would devote themselves to the ministry and the word and prayer. And I really think what they're trying to do is to create a self-sustaining church that even though they've left, this church is continuing and thriving because of the love, support, encouragement of a group of people. I think what they're doing is trying to see to it that there are independent yet interdependent churches. What I mean by that is they're trying to make sure that this church can function once we leave, but they also don't want them to function in a bubble. They want them to realize that, that them and other churches can work together and should work together. Um, I want to pause there just to say that there are some tremendously cool things that are happening throughout Miamisburg of uh, what I would say of the church seeking to be the church. And... Um, even tomorrow, I'm going to be going to a lunch 
with several different pastors from the area. And the goal, the, the idea, the thought process is really let's pray about the church being the church. The church is not being in competition with one another, um, but working together. And I'm really excited about that. Would love um, prayer even for that meeting. But I think what they're doing, what Paul and Barnabas are doing, first round, let's make disciples. Let's, let's see that there's believers. Second round is let's put together these people. Let's challenge. Let's encourage them. Let's appoint elders so that these places would be a missional outpost, that they would be for the kingdom, that they would be a community lighthouse, that they would be independent believers, meaning that they would, they would work together. Um, they don't need necessarily anything else, but at the same time, they'd be interdependent and that they would desire to see churches together. Um, I think that's why they're appointing elders in each city. They're not just trying to see to it that these people begin to work together and become friends and hang out, and so that way you have somebody to hang out with on Friday night. But I think when they're appointing people to oversee and to care for and to shepherd, it's because they want that to continue. They want it to go beyond just people doing personal evangelism. But I think that the, the, the method behind this is they desire to see a church be a family of families. They desire to see a church that would truly be a community lighthouse, that would be a missional outpost. And I might again be speculating and reading into it, but why else establish shepherds? I think it's that there is this desire that everywhere where they've gone, there would be this place that people, believers, could be in close relationship with one another. They could grow, they could be challenged, they could be encouraged. And that people all around would see something beautiful in that place. In the book of Acts, in the very beginning, I think what you oftentimes see is that one of the greatest evangelistic tools is the community of people. Oftentimes it will say like they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching the breaking of the bread. They shared everything that they had and the Lord added to the number daily of those who were being saved. And I've said this before that I really think one of the greatest tools to attract people to Jesus is when a community of followers of Christ care for one another, love one another, encourage one another, when they, they give to one another. And I believe that that's really what Paul and Barnabas are doing on this second half of their journey is they're wanting to, there to be these beautiful places missional outposts, a community lighthouse, a church. But I think that when we, I say those things first before I say a church, because I think when we think of a church, we often think of a building or we often think of a Sunday morning service, but what they're seeking to do is so much greater than that. They're wanting it to be a true outpost for the kingdom of Christ. Uh, as you continue reading through the Word, you'll see that later Paul will encourage Timothy to appoint elders. He'll encourage Titus to do the same. And I really think it goes into what you even see in First Peter, that God has been and always will be about not just seeing that individuals would come to faith, but he's looking for a people. He's looking for a priesthood of believers, a people that would, to kind of use um, Josh's language from last week, Josh Baker preached last week, and he talked about the difference between being a surrendered servant and a skeptical servant. I think what, what, what Paul and Barnabas are seeking to do, what God is leading them to do, is to seek to find a people that would be surrendered servants. 
seeking to find a people who would entrust themselves to the Lord. A group of people that would embrace their lack of control. I think that by them appointing elders, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to establish a group of people, a people that would care more about pleasing God than pleasing themselves. They would care more about um, God's glory than their own. I think that they're looking for a, a people who will rely on the Lord, who will wait on the Lord. Um, I think when I first became a believer, I thought that God's... Um, job almost was to just save people that's just what he was about and i and i don't want to in any way neglect that i think he 100 percent does that but i think he wants to do even more than that and he wants a people who together will will work for the cause of christ i think he's looking for a community who will be on mission together i think what he's doing with paul and barnabas in this is he's He's having Paul and Barnabas invite people to get off of the bench and to play the game. I think he's looking for a people. He wants to find people who will oversee, who will encourage, who will exhort. So again, uh, purpose of round one, I think, is personal evangelism. Make disciples. Encourage people to know this Jesus who is who saves people. But then in round two, I think, let's put these people together and let's form these missional outposts. Well, what are the results? They appoint elders in every church. There's this group of people now for each church that are going to oversee, that are going to challenge, they're going to encourage, they're going to have a responsibility to and a responsibility for this church to be a missional outpost, for this church to be a community lighthouse. Um, the results. If the message doesn't go to the Gentiles, then therefore these churches continue to spread. We're not here. Like, they really embrace that vision of make disciples of all nations for us to even be here today. So I think the results speak for themselves. I think that's one of the things that makes them such a dynamic duo. So, what can we learn from this? I think first and foremost... Um, why all of this happened was because some guy, Jesus, said, if you want to get to God, there is only one way, and it is through me. You can try to work real hard. It's not going to get you there. You can be a good person. That's not going to get you there. What Jesus says is the one way is through Jesus, through faith and the forgiveness of sins. So I think first and foremost, what can we learn from this? That is our starting point, is a relationship with, with Christ. The second thing I think we can learn from this is that really if, if God has done that in our lives and if we truly understand the magnitude of what we've been forgiven for, you know, it says he who forgives or he who has been forgiven much forgives much. He who, who loves much has been loved. Like, so if we realize how big of an impact that has been in our lives, then the next step is really that, that we live a life in such a way that at home, that at work, that in our neighborhood, that in our family, that we desire for people to, to know who he is and what he can do. But I also think that oftentimes we as believers, we stop there. 
especially in our culture where we're supposed to be kind of independent, where if you need something, you can just go get it. Like if you run out of eggs, you just run out of the grocery store and get it. Like I think that we are in this culture where we're so independent. And we, we stop there. We go, yeah, I'm a follower. Yep, I'll kind of try to share Jesus with people I know. And we stop there. But I really think that God has designed it in such a way. He's designed us. He created us to be a people in his image. And people in his image are people who long for community. God is in community with himself. And we were created to, to desire community, to want community. And I think that really what we do with going further than this, what we can learn from this of them going around mission one and then separating to mission two of establishing these, these churches with overseers and all that stuff. I think it's really so that we would learn that there's so much more than just being a believer and just trying to share Jesus with people, but that we would be a people. That we would be intertwined in each other's life, challenging and encourage each other to grow in our relationship with the Lord, to make his name known. that we would be independent believers who are interdependent upon one another. They established these elders whose job are to challenge, to encourage, to have responsibility to, responsibility for, who will pray for, who will oversee, who will shepherd, who will care for. I think it's this beautiful picture. Um, I think it's a beautiful picture. Now, has it always been a beautiful picture? No. Um, but what they're looking to do is to establish these places that will have oversight, encouragement, shepherding, that they would be an, an outpost for his mission. Um, I think that's what we can learn from this text. Let's pray. God, um, I thank you for the ways that you have ways that you have worked. God, I know that in my own life that, yes, you called me. Yes, you rescued me. It's salvation came through you, but I also know that you used people. And I remember the profound impact of someone caring enough about me that they would share this Jesus with me. And then I also know the amazing um, impact that being deep in one another's lives, that together being on mission, together having a vision to see people come to know you. And what a powerful thing that is to be known and to be cared for and to be challenged and to be encouraged. And so, God, I, I just pray that we would be a church, that we would be a place that experiences that depth of relationship, that depth of us realizing that we are called to be the body. We are called to be a part of the body of Christ. And so, God, help us to um, not listen to our culture that tells us to be independent, but help us to be um, your people who work together for your kingdom. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the next month or so, um, we are going to go out of our way to kind of acknowledge um, this same type of thing of, of how God is working even here. Um, there are here um, a leadership team 
a group of elders, if you will, that their heartbeat is just this, that we would be a missional outpost for the kingdom of Christ here in Miamisburg. The, the heartbeat behind it is that we would challenge, we would encourage, we would oversee. Um, we'll see even next week um, that we would be a people who would come alongside seeking that false teaching would not happen. Um, but but I, I want, we want to share kind of who these people are and for a couple reasons. One, so that if you ever have a problem, concern, question, you can go to them. But two, um, you can be praying for them. Um, Keith Barber came up to me and said, um, thank you, and said it's Pastor Appreciation Week. And um, I said, that's kind of a bad thing for me to now know because nobody else said thank you or anything. So it's kind of, I don't know about other people on the leadership team. Anybody say thank you to you guys? I mean, um, so, uh, but in any case, um, we, all of us on this leadership team would truly love for you guys to pray for us. I was actually... um, today, thinking back over people that I have known that have been in a leadership role of a church, and I cannot tell you how many of them have fallen. I can't tell you how many of them have gone through divorce. I can't tell you how many of them have had more moral failure. The people on the, the leadership team of this church, we are human. And we are uh, prone to listen to the enemy if we're not listening to the Lord. So, number one, I want to share with you so you know that there are people who you can talk to. Um, I want you to know that this is not a place where it's about one, two, three people. This is a place where God has put a group of people to lead and to shepherd. And then also, um, I tell you because I think it's important for people here to truly regularly be praying for the people and their families. But the people on the leadership team, um, Keith Barber, Duke Bowles, Andrew Daffler, Bob Neubauer, Terry Offenberger, our uh, resident security guard today, Kevin Osborne, myself, and then Rusty Toadvine. Um, But again, in this text, like, through Paul and Barnabas, God appoints elders to oversee, to shepherd, to challenge, to encourage a church to be a missional outpost, this church to, um, to be a community lighthouse. And, and ultimately, that's what that group of men seek to do. Um, but again, I would love if you guys would pray and would uh, speak appreciation to them, um, to myself as well. Let's pray again. God, again, I just thank you that I... Um, that I just get to lead with an awesome group of men that desire to make you known. And uh, God, I just, um, I'm truly thankful for what you're doing here and for your word and how we can learn from it. And so God, I just pray that you would continue to guide us, that you would continue to lead us, um, that we would humbly follow where you lead us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.